Hello and welcome to episode 135 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray setting up at the drawing desk as we prepare to talk all things golf architecture today. Yes, we welcome a long-time friend of the pod, Harley Cruz, back into the studio. And that's always an interesting discussion. Of course, I've got no idea yet what it is we'll be talking about, but I'm sure that it won't be dull. We're yet to have a dud chat with Harley Cruz, so let's hope we keep that up. Today, Harley along in just a moment, but first to my co-hosts in this little project, golf's leading left field thinker, Adrian Logue. Bit of reaction to our episode last week, which I'll fill you in on in a moment, mm, Okay. Not all good. Okay. Which we kind of like. Yeah. Anyway, we'll come to that in a moment. Uh, and representing the younger generation, deputy and digital editor of Golf Australia magazine, host of the new GA podcast offering, Playing from the Tips, Jimmy Emanuel. Jimmy, back in the guest chair, which do you prefer? You been enjoying the hosting? Uh, I much prefer this because I've got a lot less to do, <laughs> particularly when we don't know what we're going to talk about. That's, That's great. Right. Indeed. Uh, might, might I say, I don't know what the listeners think, but anyone who hasn't listened to it, go and have a listen. I think Jimmy's doing a fabulous job as the host, so uh, enjoying being a part of that. So, so what's this feedback? Do they, they think they're better than us or something? What's, I'm trying I, to think of what we talked I've about ri- last I've week. written this out <laughs> in a certain order. All right, sorry. Go ahead. All right, and you're now interfering with that. And to our guest today, for the first Sorry. time in the shiny new studio, I think, have you been here before, Harley? I think this is no, the first time. No, first time. Yeah, indeed. What did you describe this as? The the fancy side of the highway that we've moved The to? dark side of the highway. <laughs> it's been too long, mate. Welcome back. Thank you. Have you watched Full Swing? No, I haven't. Okay. Neither have I. I think I was upfront about that last week. Had some listener feedback. We talked about it for the whole episode last week. Now, Daniel Crawford got in touch with me. Daniel, I'll talk to you about some other stuff you mentioned here independently. Last week was very one-sided, he said, and continually I heard what non-golfers would or wouldn't like from a group who are golfers. Isn't this the very problem you always bring up? He's right, I do always bring that up. Golfers feeling they know what's best for everyone. Golfers are golf's biggest problem. He's quoting my own stuff back at me. I tried to argue with you about some stuff you said about non-golfers, but you wouldn't hear it, so I was quiet. No, I'm Deferred completely opposed to, to the idea. I accept that. Uh, I thought one person in the show would have at least thought to watch it with a non-golfer to get their opinion. Did I watched with my partner, who's a non-golfer. She enjoyed the stories and the way it was put to her. She can't wait for the next series. So I well, take all that on board. I, I'm still not. Look here. Daniel, is it? Daniel, <laughs> Daniel's got some other <laughs> issues more generally about the pod, which I'll talk to him about separately. He raises some interesting and good points. I, I think we prefaced everything with, I suspect non-golfers will have this reaction. But also, I think we said non-golfers will enjoy it, but... The part of the issue is that when they go and tune in, like if they become a big Joel Damon fan and then they go and tune in to the PGA Tour, they're not going to get any Joel Damon. And contrast that with what we're seeing with Drive to Survive right now where they've released a new series and you've got, it doesn't matter who the episode's about, when the race is on this weekend at Bahrain, you're going to see some coverage of that person, whoever whoever you're a big fan of. Every single character in Drive to Survive gets a fair bit of coverage every weekend in their race weekends. Which raises but, Daniel's... So the sustained... Point. The sustained interest so may not be there. something there, Jimmy, in your own yeah. defence or my defence? I think, my I think I've – no, it's definitely not in your defence, <laughs> by no means by that. I, I thought about it a bit more in editing your column for Golf Australia this week, Rod. I'm sure there'll be a link in the show That's notes. A big job. Yeah. <laughs> it never looks <laughs> anything like my It's fantastic. That's a, that's a Monday <laughs> morning task. task that I'd never <laughs> look forward to. But I think there's more scope for what the PGA Tour is interested in doing in turning – their product into something for someone who just wants to watch that level of a sport mm-hmm. with no interest in turning that into golfers. No, that's right. And I think Full Swing does a 
decent job of trying to so. attract that. I think there's the the gap with what Logue talks about with those players being successful. That Joel Damon episode, I watched it back again. Without question, it's the best of them. Um, but again, I'm sort of thinking a lot of that could be compressed into about three episodes with and, small and again, segments I think on it. Something like the Joel Damon episode would make a great YouTube special yeah. by no laying up. And in some ways, they could do it better than and what Netflix could do with maybe the the thousands of hours coverage yeah. that they had to decide. And I, and I did sit down and watch some episodes with non, a non golfer and then told a few others to watch it and tell me what they think. And the overwhelming response I got was, eh, I couldn't get into it. Mm. So I take yeah. Daniel's point and that his wife enjoyed it yeah, and absolutely. whatever, but that's not going to be for everyone. It's never going to be for no yeah. one. But here's the next one, which I think is probably interesting as well. Uh, next point. We heard how full swing won't work with golf, but does with everyone because of the format. I can't believe no one thought or brought up would a full swing show not work perfectly with live only. Same mm. format of teams, limited starters, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's directly to your point, Logue, that it's the answer would point. be yes. It's a great point. It would. And I think in my review, I had a paragraph which basically said that if world golf, the upper echelon of golf was 20 weeks, including the majors with all the same players playing every week, then it would be in and, and a more it's compressed season with an off season and everything. It would work really well. And interestingly, I think we found out during the week that the live golfers contracts yes, contain a clause that they have to take part in a docu-series if they have one. And they also have a clause that says they cannot be critical neither of the organisation or that's of, pretty the, normal stuff, of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Yeah, that's not so normal. That's <laughs> yeah. I'd just be trying to avoid doing that anyway, just based <laughs> off previous a, just, previous <laughs> issues that have happened. I think, yeah, I mean, Liv is so much more open to being just a purely entertainment product and getting the players to buy into that and also doing that, the 100% that docuseries style thing would be much more fitted there. Mm. But the they, seem, of, they seem to be... Sorry, Harley, un- come to your area yeah, of expertise, yeah, sure. Good, they seem good. to be good deal with tentative, Daniel first. tentative <laughs> to... <laughs> delve completely into that like the team uniforms is a great example of you can really identify these players which if you're doing something like a full swing you know you've got a team episode but they just haven't done it yet so the should big, be embracing like a professional wrestling vibe and the the thing that everyone was waiting to be critical of with full swing or a lot of people were within the media was that there'd be the pga tour would exercise a lot of control over the content and i think there was probably some of that perhaps mm-hmm. unspoken but from my what I'm reading, I don't think there was a lot. They haven't really meddled too much, which was the big concern. Would you get that same thing with Live Golf? No. Would you always have the feeling that it was being managed and manipulated much? Anyway, what's the drive to survive like? Is that unfettered access, unencumbered by the governing authority of F1, or is it? Or do you get the feeling that there's a bit after of state-run media there? Oh, definitely after a season or two, it became more unfettered. I think there's limits to what they can get coverage to, but the, what everybody's seen is it's just increasing the pool of money exponentially like even the even numbers the value, in the US are staggering that's right. yeah. but even the value yeah, they can charge for putting a sticker on a car is gone up massively because that sticker is getting so many more eyeballs now because of Drive to Survive uh, on the series itself like it's a whole new um, palette for the, for all of the advertiser stuff to be displayed on uh, so it, it's just increased the money in every aspect of Formula 1 and I think that solves a lot of problems with yeah, with, what, what sort of access you get? <laughs> with access, yeah. And it's, and it's built a whole new audience, hasn't it? Like yeah. It's created a whole new audience for In the US, three, three Grand Prix in the, in the US now. And, yeah. and particularly females who wouldn't normally have been interested in Formula One are all yeah. of a sudden now watching, through watching Drive to Survive, and actually now interested in the whole thing and actually watching the, the stuff on TV. Somewhat related to that, Harley, and on that, and this is, we'll finish up on this, but 
those who don't know, I've got a podcast studio here in Sydney, and one of the podcasts that records here is about MotoGP. It's a very politically incorrect version of a MotoGP podcast. But I remember saying to one of the hosts once, I had no interest in MotoGP before they came here, and you sort of sit here week to week and listen to us. I mean, this is really just sort of neighbours for blokes with motorbikes, isn't it? And he said, yeah, <laughs> nothing to do with motorbikes. It's all about the soap opera. Yeah, and you've yeah. got elements of that in all of that, and, and that's something that golf has lacked. Yeah, We saw a bit of it earlier this year with Reed and McElroy in Dubai. But really, Mickelson and Woods never go head to head. They interact so little with each other. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've got so many people there. The nature of the game, and they, you, you, the idea that you can go head to head is so rare. You know, so many times it's challenging from three groups apart. You might not see another player who's supposedly your rival for an entire week without doing it intentionally. Shades of AFL, isn't it? I remember Lockett, Lockett v Ablett. Never yeah, got within 40 metres of each other, but it was the game everybody waited for all year back at that yeah, time. They just right. dated myself again. Anyway, uh, that's it. So, Daniel, thank you for that. Yeah. I will respond to your Seriously, message. you've made a, a powerful enemy, but thank you, Daniel. <laughs> you don't know what you've done. <laughs> when we work no, out who sincerely, the powerful enemy you. is, we'll also please, let you know. Please that. send feedback. It's fantastic. Uh, to uh, get Daniel said some nice things too, but yeah. um, what I will say is we do like to get some feedback. I probably don't give out enough ways for people to get in touch, so that's a reminder. You can email me, rod at talkinggolf.com. Logue, how many Gs in Talking Golf? One. Just the one G yeah, in just talking the one. Golf. It does yeah. double duty. And Logue's home address is. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So, yeah, can send me an email or my direct messages are open on Twitter, which is how Daniel got in touch with me, and you can feel free to do the same, particularly if you disagree with us. That's when we find the most interesting stuff. Harley, where have you been? Uh, right, I've been a few places recently, but this time last week I was in probably hour 50 of a 56-hour trip to get from Sydney to uh, a place in Laos called Paxe. Uh, left Monday morning and I got there Wednesday afternoon about four o'clock, which wow. was a bit of a slog to get there. And uh, but finally got there and it was worth it. Um, a site of for uh, potentially two golf courses on the banks of the Mekong River, the mighty Mekong River, which is runs through the the guts of Laos through down into uh, Vietnam and out into the sea down below. But it's um, beautiful spot, third world Asian country that's um, population of about seven million people. Um, but everything's going towards obviously opening up tourism infrastructure and things like that. So, is there a place for golf? No, I often think about this, Harley. Does golf belong everywhere? Does it belong in the desert? Does it belong in a place like Vietnam? Uh, well, well in, in, this Vietnam, in Laos, yeah. Look, in this particular site, yes. I mean, they've got there's enough tourism at the moment, but a lot of that tourism is sort of three or four star backpacker type tourism. But this is a bit like Vietnam twenty years ago. It was sort of that sort of low key. Uh, tourism without any inf- much infrastructure, and this is basically tying up, you know, some infrastructure of hotels and beautiful scenery and food and some good old cold beer laos to have at the end of the day. And um, and then next to right next to it, you've got Vietnam to the east, and that's busy with golf, really busy. And but has that been a good thing for you? I don't know enough about it, but has that been a positive? We we see, well, you certainly read places like China where there's a lot of golf, but it's a very exclusive and sort of fenced off. Recreation yeah. has golf distorted. in Vietnam yeah. and uh, yeah, that's right. It's it's a in, and other places in Asia, has it been a force for good? It's not always been the case in. Yeah, look, I think I think the, the big um, percentage of golf being played in in Vietnam is inbound golf tourism. Mm-hmm. So you know, you've got X amount of population have the the wealth and the, and the time and the ability to go and play golf, which is you know these guys and women might be members of a couple of golf clubs. Um, but it is the inbound golf tourism. And I think Da Nang had 45,000 golf right. rounds played in January. So there like has to be some spin-off good from that huge. people in the So there's, there's jobs. There's there's jobs through all these golf courses. There's caddies, the hotels, the whole thing. It's it's a big um, business in itself and brings people to the country. Thailand's the same. Thailand's a more mature market than 
than say even Vietnam. But every golf course, I was with a friend there on Sunday. He's a member of three golf courses. He can't get a tee time unless he books it three weeks in advance wow. around around Bangkok or Pattaya. So they're they're busy. So I guess you know go to a country like Laos. Um, I think they've got three golf courses in the whole country, and and to put a couple more in um, and again it'll be for inbound golf tourism and there'll be jobs around it and you know there'll be some young kid who grows up on the golf course in the future or nearby who eventually become a handy little golfer hopefully so, so funnily enough it's what the president's cup needs it needs a sevy to come out of Laos or thailand or somewhere a sevy type character yeah and rise to that president's cup that would be fabulous for the president's cup yeah we could just wait for that to happen the president's yeah. cup will start to come into its own yeah so I think there's stories of that, you know, even back in my Tomo days, they, they built a golf course in, up in the um, Bali Handar on the top of the mountains there in, in Bali. And there was people who, uh, jobs and careers started through the construction of that golf course. You know, they were out there learning how to build golf courses and they decided to have a career in building golf courses. Or some of them would start playing golf, young, you know, young caddies would end up, you know, at the end of the day getting out there and having a hit and eventually becoming golfers. So... I don't know. I, think, I always sort of think positively of these things. I think there's good things that come out of all this. So, yeah, look, it's an exciting exciting prospect. Is that a stupid question, Jimmy? You looked at me a bit funny when I asked Harley that right back at the start. Well, if Harley's gone over there to try and look at building a golf course, I'm sure he thinks it's a great <laughs> idea to put golf in the lab. <laughs> can well, I, can I trademark you... the uh, Mekong Masters as a tournament name? Oh, oh it's nice. Just stop getting in early? Yeah, mm. good idea. Yeah, okay, good. We've got that on. It's a shame Magical's taken with the Magical Kenyan Open because the Magical Mekong Masters would be mm. pretty well, the good. Mighty, and I mean, the, I'm mighty, the, mighty, the, mighty, the mighty, mighty, mighty Mekong. And I'm yeah, installing yeah. Mike Clayton as my tournament director. <laughs> You've made your first mistake. (laughs) Indeed. And what's it like over there, Harley? What's the? So obviously you've said there's only three courses in the whole country. You haven't got a golf culture that you're dealing with. Who's building the golf courses, and what sorts of things you were encountering that you maybe weren't expecting that would be different if, for example, you went down to the south coast of New South Wales to build a resort? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, it's it's early days. Uh, The the investment in the country, most investment in Laos, is offshore money. So this is Hong Kong Chinese investors who are into hotels and tourism elsewhere and they're seeing Laos as an opportunity to get in there. Obviously, it's a, a ch- cheaper entry point from a development point of view uh, and a market that's untapped with opportunity. So they're, they're looking at the commercial side of that. Um, and golf's part of a broader asset. Um, there's some spectacular waterfalls just a K away. Uh, so integrating and sort of a lot of natural beauty and and uh, there. So I think they're just tapping into all those sorts of things. So so it is offshore money. They're, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a sort of a a young, immature economy that relies on you know, agrarian production of coffee and rice and exporting that to its neighbours. I mean, that's, that's the other thing about Laos. It's the only landlocked country, and I think, in all of Asia. Right. Like, it's got – you've got Vietnam to the east, you've got Thailand to the west, Cambodia to the south, and China to the north. So uh, it's, it's interesting – uh, just the psyche, I guess, of that country being landlocked like that. Um, but they're closer to Thai than they are to Vietnam or China um, in terms of language and things like this. So, yeah, look, interesting days. It's very early days and we'll see how it goes. But it's there's uh, something to kick off there. There's more people, I think, my age travelling to these areas again than when we travelled there when we were younger, that sort of area, and, and would not. What sort of age might you be, Jimmy, for the listeners who don't know? I'll you used to be young not long ago. Fractionally over 30, I go. am. Okay. So a lot a lot more of my friends and, and people who now are getting back into things like golf here at home are travelling to these areas again and 
places like Thailand and everything like that, I now get more questions of, where can I play golf while I'm there as well? Now, they're not going on a golf trip. As well? Yes, yeah, not a golf trip. Not a golf trip well. in any way, shape, or form. It's beaches, it's bars, it's relaxing, it's spas, it's all that sort of stuff. But trying to tie on that sort of thing. So, I think to that demographic, it's becoming a really attractive option. It's cheaper than going to Europe. And if you're going to Europe, you're not taking your golf clubs. If you're going to Asia, you can or hiring stuff. And the idea of playing with a caddy for someone who doesn't play that much, these sort of things are becoming a really attractive sort of an idea. Yeah. And then they become return visitors again and again. You know, it's one that they're those places you go to Thailand once and you go to a nice place and you want to keep going back because it's so much fun, it's cheap, it's all that sort of stuff. So, it makes total sense to me to try and capture some of that tourism into another country. Yeah. They're huge investments, aren't they? It's a much bigger yeah. deal to build a golf course than a hotel or a amusement park or something like that. A golf course is a huge investment. It's an ongoing cost. It's a. It's always the issue with golf as a business. People used to say to Richard Sattler when he first opened Bar and Boogle Dunes, it's fantastic. And everyone who comes here raves about it. But more importantly, do they come back? Well, in the case of Bar and Boogle, they have done. Mm-hmm. Part of the pressure to build the second course at Barnburg was to capture that market of golfers who'd been four or five times, and then it's time for your golf holiday again the next year. And think, well, we've done Barnburg the last week. Should we go somewhere different? Yeah, they're the issues that golf courses face because your costs don't go down to maintain it <laughs> once it's built. It's an ongoing thing. You've got to be able to get get people keep coming back. So the economics of a golf course aren't easy if it's not a membership course. Not that they're mm. easy if well, it's a membership. That's the interesting point. I think if it's not driven by domestic demand, yeah. And I, I would imagine there's not a lot of domestic demand for golf in Laos no, and correct. Cambodia. Is there enough in the surrounding because it, Thailand and China and Vietnam? Or Thailand. Well, yeah. yeah, there is. So I think I think the um, the difference with you know these places like Vietnam and Laos, Thailand, Philippines, Cambodia doing golf, um, Myanmar is doing golf. I'm hearing a little bit about. So is you've got you know to the north you've got the cold climates of Japan, South Korea, China. Big markets. In fact, the, the South Korean golf market is huge, and basically their golf courses are shut in winter, uh, unless they're just you know playing golf down a twenty meter strip that's yeah. been snow ploughed, which they do do in Korea because they're so crazy about golf. But there's a huge amount of inbound, um, a, a huge market of, for golfers to come into that part it's of like the world. Florida of Asia, correct? <laughs> in some way, yeah, basically, yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. So, so you've got a huge population immediately to the north, and so it's it's almost a no brainer, and and so. Like I said before, Darnang, where you've got um, Darnang Dunes, which is involved with when I was at Greg Norman Design. There's two golf courses there. Hoyana Shores, um, is, and then there's uh, Faldo Course to the north of Darnang. They are all flat out busy. They're charging 160 US around a golf. Uh, you can't, you've got to book your tee time in you know, really early. And um, as I said, there was 45,000 rounds of golf played in Darnang in January alone. The golf club that I was involved with there, the, the Darnang Dunes, they did 6,000 rounds in January. You know, so it's huge, huge. So they've. So the problem is actually, it's it's almost there's not an oversupply of golf for that that time of the year when it's sort of uh, Northern Asian winter. So things might taper off a little bit during the summertime. But then you know they actually. I guess the difference between here and there is they. Um, you know, it's it's roughly thirty degrees all year round. It's either dry season or wet season. So they've got, mm. you've got, um, you know, from June through to September, it's it's basically rains every day. So, so but anyway, it's an interesting market, and there's a it's a bigger market and a lot a lot of greater population around there than say you know here in Australia where we're so yeah. relatively far away. Yeah, and completely spread out and totally yep. different sort of thing. Like golf in Asia. For 20 years, I must have been, I've said this and heard this and talked about it as this a huge potential burgeoning market and golf's popular in Asia, and yet it never really seems to be at the fore, does it? And what Jimmy's saying, if for hardcore golfers, Asia's just not a destination that from Australia you tend to think about. 
Well, I think it why needs, is that, and how do we change it, Pete? It needs to come from within. I've actually, on a few occasions, been like we've been approached about doing handicapping in Laos and Cambodia and Vietnam, for that matter. Even in Vietnam, there's just not the domestic demand to to organise golf into a form where it's something that's accessible to the general population, where golf just it becomes, you know, like in Australia, if you got rid of all of the golf courses, someone would go and build a golf course the next day. Right. Uh, because, you know, people want to play golf and they've got the there's, leisure there's time and, the, and the, there's, the, there's sort of that middle class wealth that have the, the leisure time to do it. Um, and I don't know whether um, some of those countries, have, well, I think it's evident that those countries haven't reach that um, well some have and some haven't you've got places you know in terms of should we call it Thailand. golf culture maturity you've got places like indonesia thailand um malaysia yeah. singapore where they've been playing golf for a long time and you're in you know probably second generation of golfers so it is part of the of their of their of, of, of the, there is a golfing culture another hat tip to peter thompson for that too by the way he's been well, was instrumental <laughs> in the 50s and was, 60s in growing the popularity he, and he, taking he and kel nagel out there playing the philippine Sorry. open and the indonesian open and all this sort of yeah. stuff in the 60s and and uh, so bringing bringing golf to that to those areas but so there is there is a um, in those countries too like it was actually interesting you know traveling back from laos on saturday to to thailand and i haven't been to thailand for 10 years or so, but it, Thailand just felt like a matured economy, a mature country, a relatively sophisticated and, and developed uh, country, which it is, uh, and the economy is strong. And so you've got second or third generation golfers going on in, in Thailand. So there is a, you know, yes, it is for the the wealthier part of the, the, the demographic, but it, there is a culture there. Uh, and it's a little bit different. I think, you know, you've got certain Asian countries that have idolised American golfing culture, probably more than, say, European or British golf culture. And I think that's part of the, a little bit of the subtle differences in, in what you see. Philippines is you know, totally golf, American golf culture, and uh, South Korea is probably American, more American golf culture, excuse me, than, than um, Britain. Mm. Um, South Korea fascinates me. You never hear about anybody going to South Korea to play golf. You look at women's golf in particular and the number of world-class players that come out of there. You'd think there'd be a curiosity about how that's happening and what are the facilities there. But do you know anyone who's been to South Korea to play golf? I don't. I know a lot of people have been to South Korea of late, but not to play golf, no. I know somebody who's going to South Korea in a couple of months, the sponsor of this episode, Matt Burns from oh, Angus oh, and Grace Go Golfing. That's the smoothest one yet. <laughs> that was seamless. Uh, I, I enjoyed that. Angus and Grace Go Golfing are a boutique golf clothes outlet based in William Street, Paddington. Uh, I asked Matt, the proprietor of Angus and Grace Go Golfing, the other day what shops he's surrounded by. He's at, there's a bridal boutique. There's uh, like a fancy underwear shop there's next to him. Shop. There's a dent. That's right. They make interesting stuff out of denim. I don't. Know, it's all very. It's amazing stuff. Anyway, Angus and Grace go golfing. The clothing's fantastic. Jimmy and I regularly wear some Angus and Grace go golfing stuff. Not today. Ooh, there's now touching in the studio. Harley's got his hands. Harley's on touching shirt. my material. Yes. Also worn occasionally by now Mike Clayton. Big yeah. fan. That's a huge wrap. Yep. Uh, and uh, influence. If you any golf daddy sightings in. In the wild, there's this been week. endless golf daddy sightings in the wild, from what I've heard. If golf daddy is his offshoot brand of hats, yeah, and they have been worn by influencers. I call them influencers, sports journalists, uh, former hockey roos, Georgie Parker. But uh, I've seen them. I see them all over the city, actually, everywhere through Sydney. Tell, but I tell you what, people want to know. Anybody who's been listening, what they want to know, Jimmy, is about this cotton. 
which is the third time <laughs> I've asked you to give us some information about this. You're talking environment. about the good earth cotton? Yes, but I want more details the than just the press release. traceable cotton program. Yeah, I want more details in the press release. What does that mean? Well, good earth cotton is not a standard. Good earth cotton program requires all participating farms Did to you report miss the bit annually. About the press on release that I didn't want to hear about. <laughs> There's no such thing as a press release. I'm this just, is a this off the top of my head. The, the, it, it requires all I'm participating farms interested. to report annually on their primary data showcasing impact at a farm-by-farm level. This is a third-party audited report, Rod. Okay. Good Earth Cotton is measured against the carbon-friendly method, which has been built of the global greenhouse gas protocol and uses carbon as a single indicator. And I'll give you more information about it next week. Okay. <laughs> I did actually mention to Matt that I want some more detail go on about the Good Earth Cotton. I could go on for hours. When yeah. we were doing another thing the other day for a different uh, golfing uh, episode of, of sorts, I suppose, I'm doing some driver testing for something. Uh, but, yes, it is fantastic clothing. I will get more details. It's comfortable, Australian-made, Australian-owned, 2% of everything. They still goes to wires. And, and where can people go? Angus and Grace Go Golfing on Instagram and also angusandgracegogolfing.com. Have I been putting that in the show notes? I don't think I have. Well, My apologies. That's on you. Angus that's on Grace. you. No yeah. wonder Matt doesn't want you to tell that. us more about well, the right. cotton. That's because everything's on me. That's right. Now <laughs> that's I remember. Right. You did that. Hey? Can you send me that's those links? Can you send me those links for the show notes? Sure. And maybe a link to the Good Earth Cotton so people who are interested can read it. Because I actually think that is important and a good issue. Well done. And I did mention it last week, though I didn't put the link in, though I will. The Australian Golf Passport Show are also being supported by Angus and Grace Golf Coast. I'm going to put a link to their episodes. There, it's, it's definitely a, worth listening to. It's a fantastic yeah, show. It really is. Yeah. It, it's been. Uh, it was a fabulous companion for me on the drive back from Melbourne after the Australian. You would have. You would have listened to that, Harley. Australian Golf Passport. No, I haven't. Oh, okay. Oh, they probably. Get out. They might have even get covered. Out. And leave the Angus and Grace go golfing shirt. Can <laughs> <laughs> I take the cap? <laughs> go, the golf daddy cap. Uh, indeed. What about locally, Harley? That's you've been sort of off overseas, and it's. Int- I'm, I'm interesting. There was a period there where that was the life of a golf course Arctic, particularly in Asia. If you were from Australia, you would have spent. Many, yeah. many, many months in Asia working for other people. Yeah. Is that – that seemed to quieten down a bit. Is that picking up again? Is that what we're to take from what you're saying? And then we'll talk a bit about what you're doing right here. Like. Yeah, I think – well, actually, I'm hearing if, – if you look at, I guess in, in Asia, there's always been new builds over the years. Um, and and I think Vietnam, those markets I mentioned before, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam um, – are pretty healthy, but I think you know, places like Thailand, Indonesia, where you've got golf courses now 25, 30 years old, uh, and redesign time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I've had two inquiries, which I've never had remodeling or renovation work coming out of Asia, two inquiries last week while I was on the move. So one was in Cambodia and the other one was in Thailand. So, um, yeah, so there's a bit of opportunity there in our market to do that. A lot of hands across the table. There's a lot of touching which I'm not necessarily <laughs> comfortable with. A bit of mic adjustment there from Thank you. So yeah, the, I think you know, and which is you know, which is great. And I, and I think you know, when you look at stuff that was done in the early '90s in some parts there, there's um, a lot of room for improvement. Same as here yeah. in America and the UK and all around the world. Yeah. The '80s and '90s didn't yeah. produce a lot of great yeah. golf. It produced quite a bit of bland, yeah. ordinary golf, didn't it? Yeah. The only, only challenge against that is, despite the fact that these golf courses are a bit worn and worn out and need new infrastructure and, and you know, re-redesign and renovation, the big problem is that they're all busy. Mm. And this is the problem in places like South Korea where you've got some high-end golf courses and then you've got the mid-range, which are pretty ordinary, 
um, but they're busy. And they, they can't and, close and, them down. And they can't close them down because they, they, they're taking 150 bucks US around and they're going, well, why, do we, why should we do anything? Yeah, that's right. So that's a bit of a, bit of a challenge. Know, Pebble Beach has been in that position for a long time too. They've wanted to do a bunch of work on the course of Pebble Beach, but they just cannot afford to close do it. Do they it's really a, want a, to? I don't know. If the desire was really no, 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 true, they could but, go ahead with it. But it's, a, well, it's, a, it's a basically a minimum 1000 bucks if you want to guarantee a tea time at Pebble Beach. You have to stay on site. The round is 400 and something, and the cheapest room at Pebble Beach is 600 yeah, That's a thousand dollar investment. I think last I heard yeah. was the tea time. Yeah, so that if you're making that, <laughs> it's hard to kind of say, "Yeah, oh, we'll just turn that tap off for a few months while we make the seventeenth green bigger," because Mike Clayton and Jeff Shackelford don't like it, <laughs> which is kind of a you can sort of uh, sort of understand why. What about um, oh challenges of building and designing golf courses? There's a reason we don't hear a huge amount about golf in Asia. It's because there's not a lot of standout courses, is there, Harley? What's the reason for that? And what are the challenges of building and maintaining golf? In oh, I think part of well, that is- the land is amazing always. Well, it, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. I think, um, you know, Vietnam is blessed with sand dunes on the coast. It's about the only Asian country I can think of that's got sand dunes on the coast of any extent. So you've probably got, I don't know, seven or eight golf courses at least on sand dunes in Vietnam. Um Whereas other parts of Asia, you've, you've, you've got heavy soils and clays and things like that. So, um, and this site that I looked at at Lao last week, it's, it's sort of heavy, heavy soils, but there's actually some really interesting natural shape to the ground and, and having that you know, frontage to the Mekong River, it's, it's quite a, you know, it can be quite a, could be, should be a, a really good golf course. So, um, but well, I it's going to host the Mekong Masters, so better, better be Harley. Yeah, that's right. I'm disappointed if it's not. <laughs> the composite course will be just oh, yeah, me. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, but I guess challenges over the years have been, yeah, just the, the, the sheer earthworks. You hear some big numbers to do with some projects in Asia where they've, you know, where there's some big earthworks numbers. And, you know, those, you know, there might be, I don't know, for 18 holes of golf, there might be two or three million cube metres of earthworks just to just to get the ground What would that look like visually? Golf. I can't even picture it. What's two or three million cubic metres? How many swimming pools? A big hole. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I was involved with coursing career on the mountains a career years ago was in early 2000s, and that was four and a half million cubic metres of earthworks, which of the four and a half million, 500,000 cubic was actually soil. The other four million was actually rock. Right. And it took four or five years just to drill dynamite blast, drill dynamite blast for day on, day out to get this golf course, you know, scratched into the side of this this hill. Um, so so they, they ship all the rock to the DLF in, uh, in India. <laughs> now that's, <laughs> the 17th all, hole, that's where it all is rock, isn't it? It is. It's all man-made rock. Yeah. So no, they didn't. Yeah, they brought it in. <laughs> uh, no, it is real rock, oh, but they brought rock. it in oh, from right. somewhere. Yeah. The, no, the bunker layering the stuff bunker is their yeah. the, the Logue's favourite titular spring, Amata <laughs> Spring, that was just like a – that was a uh, – like a swamp or something, but they dredged it all up and then they built it into mountainous stuff. That, that amount of earthwork is amazing to build a golf course. Like the that. Lego golf course at um, Great Northern in Denmark mm. was just a like a pretty flat piece of farmland. And, and now it's like this massive ski slope sized yeah. hill where they dredged out a massive lake and then used that to fill yeah. this hill and then built the golf course on the hill with the lake, like overlooking a lake. It's quite remarkable. Mm. And does that make sense to do that? Do you understand why some people when you've might got find Lego it concerning money. that you would spend five when years drilling cash. and dynamiting yeah. rock to build a golf course? I, I can I can 
safely say that I've spent more on Lego than golf <laughs> with a five-year-old child. So they've got the cash. You've, yeah. you've trod on a lot more Lego oh, than you have Lego golf yeah. courses too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I think that, I mean, I think there's still some really good golf courses in, in Asia. We just don't hear about them so much. No. I mean, the, the well-traveled places of golf, of course, America and Europe. Um, and, you know, we're talking about golfing destinations for Australians. We tend to bypass Asia and head to Europe or the US. Um, and if you think of like Tokyo Golf Club, which was a Gil Hance renovation, I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago, that's a really good golf course. But it's, you know, it's a private members golf club and they're only open for probably seven months of the year and they're busy and it's, it's hard to get on. So we don't see these golf courses and yet they're really good. So... Uh, and Gil's done a great job there, and it's the classic Japanese golf course with two greens on each hole, and he's and done it takes a whole day to play a game of golf. Is yeah, of, yeah. Harley and I have a mutual friend uh, from South Korea, and we asked him about the culture of golf in South Korea. And we'll have to do a whole episode on this, I think, but yeah. um, uh, we'll get we'll get him on to we'll get talk about on. it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But he described. I, I was fascinated to learn that South Koreans are kind of mad for golf in the way that. Australians sort of play golf where they just go round and round and if they can get 36 holes in a day, they'll play 36 holes a day and the pace of play is really good and yeah. it's um, none of that ritual. It's just like get out there and play golf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they're crazy for it. Yeah. Really crazy. As I said, what country in the world snow plows a 20-minute strip down the middle of a fairway and starts playing golf? Yeah. That's a terrifying prospect. I'm having a physiological reaction to <laughs> a 20-metre wide fairway. I think you're having that reaction to the words playing golf. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's not helping, that's for sure. What about locally, Harley? We know that you've been involved in um, from the beginning with the redesign or restoration or whatever you'd like to call it of Royal Sydney. Where does that stand? Because, of yeah, course, yeah. it's one of Australia's premier clubs, a multiple Australian open host. People are yep. interested from outside the club as well. There was a fair bit of internal toing and froing. Gil Hands has been appointed yep. to do all of that. Where do we stand with all of that? What yeah, well, tell G- Gil was appointed in 2017, and here we are, 2023, and the club's now got a DA uh, approved for the development, and last Monday night, members voted to to basically approve the, the budgetary spend on doing the golf course, and, you know, we've seen through COVID, you know, prior to COVID, um, you know, probably the budget for the construction's gone up 30% at least, maybe 40%, just because of supply chain issues and that sort of thing? Just or? everything's gone, you know, yeah, it just inflationary, you know, labour costs and, and materials costs and the whole thing, so... Um, it's a significant increase in cost, and so it had to go to another member's vote, and that was a resounding success. 83% of the, those in attendance voted yes, and I think members just want to get on with it. A lot of people are you know, playing there are sort of tired of tired of the old course and, and, and just can't wait to get on and, and have the new course there. So it's an exciting time for the, for the golf club, obviously. Um, well, for golf generally, actually, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. A, a gill hands... Gill's first work in Australia, as far as I know, yep. or Sydney. Yeah, and it might be the first for quite some time, because my understanding is Gill's booked out for the next 10 years. So First and last. Mm. How good's he going that he's got a <laughs> he's got the job in 2017, I imagine a little retainer, and he's that, booked out for 10 years. It's yeah, great. Going all right. This, yeah, course, yeah. this course design racket you've got going, <laughs> Harley, sounds no, pretty good sure. to me. <laughs> I'm not Gill Hatch. <laughs> but no, he's booked up for 10 years, and, and he'll, he'll be out here. Uh, my understanding for the first four, four or five months of next year, okay. they'll, they'll do some preliminary works at the end of this year to get Actually, things going. He'll be here for all that time. You're yeah, saying? he's going to yeah, live yeah, here for a minute. He gets parked the, up I was the machinery. Say, and he, yeah, he he's a, shaping, right? he's a get to the location right. and get involved. He'll drive one of those across the bridge and come to this very studio and sit here and talk to us about what he's doing while he's here. We'll make yeah, sure yeah, 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 yeah. Give him a hard time. It's a huge man, Gil. Was he six foot six or something? He's a big, tall guy. Maybe we could go easy on him. Maybe we could record it in the squash. Put the chair down a bit. 
court. the squash courts at Royal Sydney where they just use that for anything but squash, seemingly. Yeah. That's where you get your golf balls during the Australian Open in the squash courts at Royal Sydney. Is that right? Yeah, there's a little fact for you, didn't know. Yeah, there's a little factoid I didn't know. Yeah. Now I'll never, ever be able to be without it. Exactly. Uh, it's kind of important. As I remember talking to a Royal Sydney, the only Royal Me- Sydney member that I know, and part of the thinking, I think, originally when they wanted to to redo the course was uh, Concord had recently been redone or was in the middle of being redone by Tom Doak. Mm-hmm. And there was a feeling that uh, um, they wanted to have something like something notable, prestigious, a prestigious designer do something this side of the bridge and at Royal City. And so they sort of got Gill to do it. Is that important in golf, Harling? Um, in, no, a good question, actually, because I think I think with Royal Sydney at the time, when, and I was part of that process when they were looking to um, appoint select a golf course architect and I actually um, Mike DeVries and I actually presented the, the collaboration of ourselves. It would have been a fair cue I would imagine of course designers wanting to get that job. Yeah they had a, they had a, uh, a, a six, uh, six um, names firms uh, there for consideration. They basically wanted the best golf course architect they could get and you know Re- um, Gill had come off the back of the Rio course Olympics mm-hmm. and other works of course that is, and, and the, a couple of the um, committee members made trips to the US to catch up and meet Gill, see his work, these sorts of things. So it was really for them, it wasn't about the name or a brand or anything like this. It was just to get the best golf course architect in the world. And here we are six years later and their architects booked up for the next 10 years. I so I think so he, he sort of exploded around that time, Gill, didn't he? He was that 20-year overnight success, wasn't he? Been yeah. at it his whole life and suddenly around that time, yeah. Gill Hands was, became the one yeah. of the top designers. So. Yeah, so it's... Um, so, you know, they, they, and that was the motivation. I mean, they want the best possible golf course for that 43-hectare piece of land, which is not a generous piece of land by any means. And I think a lot of the motivation of, of doing it was, you know, they realising this golf course, you know, it's it can be a lot better than what it is. It's not what it's, it could be. It's, it's, mm. it's a bit boring. It's a bit sterile. You know, members are travelling elsewhere and coming back and going, oh, this, you know, <laughs> and I, I guess... Although, you know, clubs tend to say rankings don't matter, but, you know, Royal Sydney was once probably in the top 10 ranked courses in, in Australia, and it's, you know, slowly slid, you know, down the down the rankings well, to wherever it is today in the 30s or 40s. Well, it's gone past it as much as anything. If it, Golf Australia's rankings for 2022, it's 56. Yeah. And it was 21 in 2012. Yeah. So, it, and it's been a steady decline. Yeah. Um, it, you know, about the last couple of years, there's probably a little bit of just... They knew they were trying to do work, so there's nothing, you know, going on. Not much going on there, which hurts a golf course like that. But yeah. it's definitely gone a long way back. Yeah, you know, that's right. And I think there's, you know, as Adam, the superintendent, there, he's got an irrigation system that's a band-aided piece of work. That's that's, as he said, I'm one disaster away in the irrigation from losing a few greens. Um, you know, fairways got narrow over the years. Fairways are really narrow. The, mm. the average width of a fairway at Royal Sydney is 20 metres wide. And one of the big um, points of Gill's redesign of the course is, you know, the average width is going to go up to 42 metres wide. So so that in itself is, you know, we're going to open up the elbows a little bit and broaden things out. And, you know, yes, there's trees to be removed. But I guess one interesting thing about Royal Sydney Golf Club, it was never routed or laid out as an entire 18 holes. What you see today, it was a cobbled together 18 holes that as land became available oh, on right. where they are today – they pulled back holes that reached out to Bondi and went up the hill outside of their current site and they kept adding things in. So it was actually never – the golf course doesn't actually sit comfortably when, where, where there is some movement in the land. It doesn't fit and sit right. It hasn't and, reached finality. 
Correct. And 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 there's and part of that finality is is there's wasted space in there, and they've got no no um, chance of really wasting space. I mean, they've, they've, they need to make maximum. And so, what Gill's redesigned actually really will get a golf course sitting comfortably within the landform that's naturally there. Something coherent. Yeah, and and uh, and use some of that wasted space, and in, and improve the the boring things like safety. Uh, you know, he's got some. There's some safety issues there with balls, le- you know, leaking outside of the golf course. Um, so it'll be a leaking. That's a good one. <laughs> leaking outside the golf course. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, man. euphemistic. I'd say something more cohesive than coherent. <laughs> Oh, we can discuss that later. That's not an interesting conversation. For me. It's not an interesting conversation, but I think it's correct. <laughs> I think, um, I think exactly what you said earlier, Rod, is right that we've got now more good track, golf like around, <laughs> more good golf around in Australia and increasingly in Sydney. That the members for Royal Sydney, like Harley said, are going to play somewhere else and going, geez, I mean, mm. uh, yeah, I had a, a friend of of my dad's go and play there for the first time the other day and who's a member of a good golf course, and came back and said, I don't see what all the fuss is about. The greens rolled really good and whatever, whatever. That mindset is becoming smaller and smaller where it's just a good conditioning and, you know, it plays Correct. well. That That's disappearing that people who've never had any interest in golf course architecture or golf mm-hmm. course design will note what it is. And, and a, a sign of where it sits of Matt Burns and I caught up with um, two pros from Sleepy Hollow in New York last week for dinner. And Loke brushed us. But they were on a 40 golf course trip around Australia and New Zealand. They were playing once in a lifetime. They were coming down. They did Tasmania. They did Melbourne. They went to Adelaide. They came to Sydney. And when they came to Sydney, they ended up only playing New South Wales and Bondi. And they had high on the list of Royal Sydney. Well, that's got to be good, right? And they spoke to a few people who said, ah, I wouldn't worry about it. You're not capturing that with what's yeah. there at the moment, which is why I think it's so important that the members are obviously behind it, but outside people will get that excitement level about it too. That broader interest in architecture, Harley, do you see that? I, I, I think we well, you live in the architecture world too, I guess, but you interact with club members and normal people who are part of golf, much more so than perhaps yeah. certainly than I do. Is that Are we kidding ourselves that that's happened or is it a genuinely... They all just want fast greens and consistent sand in the bunkers, don't they? There's still a lot of that. But. <laughs> oh, look, I think there's a... I think there's a greater golfing IQ around um, golf members and players about golf architecture than there was 10, 20 years ago, Mm. for sure. Uh, And thanks to, you know, podcasts and and, um, golf club atlas type websites and things like that, there's a lot, there's a a greater knowledge than there ever was. Uh, and, and, And I'm finding that I'm getting asked by different, you know, clubs that I'm going to and committee members or whatever, you know, really well-informed questions that you wouldn't have been asked those questions, you know, um, 20 years ago. I think the – and look, this is not um, a surprise, but I think you find that the greatest um, sort of knowledge around golf architecture and golf courses just happens to be Melbourne's golf courses on the sandbelt. I think there's a there's a sort of a, a greater understanding of what's good golf amongst Melbourneian golfers as such. Don't you have to experience it to sort of even start to think about it? Huh? Isn't that part of the thing? Yeah, like, I think course that's architecture. right. Until you see something really different, you don't start to think that it's even a thing. Yeah, correct. Exactly. Mm. Um, you know, I've got one one client where the, the captain of the golf club, you know, he, he took up golf when he retired and he's only ever played one other golf course um, and that was a golf course on the Gold Coast. And his so his his world and understanding of golf was this local regional golf course in New South Wales and this might have been the Coolangatta Golf Club or something like that. So, um, so there was a sort of a low understanding and IQ and and the board of that golf club 
uh, we encouraged to get them down to Melbourne. And all of a sudden, they went and saw Royal Melbourne, Victoria Golf Club, Peninsula Kingswood. Uh, they went down to Bellarine Peninsula and, and Curl Lewis, and they, and they saw all these places, and they just came back mm. spinning with – they didn't realise, you know – Golf could be like golf that. Golf could be like that. Mm. And they're on a sand-based site, so – uh, and that was part of my motivation to encourage them to get down there is to actually see some sand-based golf and come back to their club and sort of open up the minds that it doesn't have to be trees and wall-to-wall kaikuyu, um, which is what their course currently is. So It's interesting. I think people are primed to be open to coming away from Melbourne golf thinking that that's great. Like When they go there, they're already being told this is going to be good. Yeah. And then they get into it and they go, oh, okay, that's what good golf looks like. Whereas in Sydney, and I, I, this always find extraordinary, people play a course like the Lakes, which I think is fabulous. Um, but they, when it comes to their own course, they go, "Don't what? Don't do what Mike Clayton did to the Lakes." Like, it's like why? But why aren't you primed in that same way to enjoy the Lakes for what it is, which is uh, prior used to be Kaikuyu tight tree lined fairways yeah. and he tore all that back and ripped, yeah. ripped the grass off the ground and showed what that there's a Sydney sand belt there yeah. Yeah. and that's since been emulated to great effect at Bonnie Doon Bonnie Doon and again but you now you get people don't get don't let them do what they did at Bonnie Doon like I don't how many golf courses are going to take in Sydney and maybe Royal Sydney is the one that tips the balance possibly the I mean there was a bit go, of element oh now we've got another world class golf course and that lifts the whole lot the rising tide lifts the whole lot uh, correct I think that's I think that's probably will hopefully be the observation I think there's a there was a certain resistance amongst and of certain voices that we heard at Royal Sydney in the early days is oh we don't want to like the lakes because you know we're, we're talking about um, going f- you know, switching out 16 hectares, which is currently mown turf on that site, to non-turf, which is pretty, you know it's a big air, it's a big big area when you've got a 43 hectare site. So all of a sudden it's non-turf. You know we're not fertilising, mowing, machinery running over the ground anymore. It's going to be naturalised, rough, um, which is where I'm, my role is with this with the, with Royal Sydney. Is everything off the fairway edge for me? Um, but is is oh yes we don't want to, don't want to like the lakes you know because they're concerned about big areas of sand and and sand blow and oh the the ground will be too soft and I'll I'll roll my ankle and all, all reasons not to do it as opposed to reasons to do it in some respects but I guess where we've sort of navigated through that course is really to talk about a a rough that isn't just purely mown turf and then off into just sand and this desert it'll be you know naturalised grasses and into the heath and all those sorts of things and. Fortunately, through this process, the last five, six years with Royal Sydney, we've actually done some demonstration areas. We've ripped up areas of turf and we've put in what we're going to do as, as sample areas, both to show members what it can be like, but also for the staff to see it and get to, get some knowledge around how we create these areas. Because it's it's not necessarily straightforward how you actually create that stuff and make it look like it was, it's was it been there forever within a couple of years. So I think we've you know, I've got a meeting there this morning to go and talk about um, a bit more of this um, with some with the horticultural guy there. I mean, they've got a horticultural guy dedicated just to this exercise when we move move, move forward next year. But um, so I think there'll be a sort of a I call it a sort of more sophisticated uh, rough, shall we say that that's not just bland sand, which is probably think of Kingston Heath and Royal Mill. You get off the fairway edge there, and particularly you know January, February, where the grass has browned off and gone that golden colour off the tee. It looks quite daunting and the outside and these roughs and it's sort of sort of knee high but you you get in there and it's actually browned off and you can look down the ground it's like 60 percent of what you're standing on is like sandy ground and the rest of it's the tufts of grass so 
Raw Sydney will have a bit of that. And, Wispy, and, sort of. Yeah, with, yeah correct, yeah. absolutely. And, and Gil was out in January. He was out here having a look, and he was really encouraged by what he saw in some of those trial areas. So I think we're on the right track. And, and as I said, it, it'll probably lift the game, and you'll have the lakes and Bonny Doon and New South Wales and, and Raw Sydney with this sort of naturalised ground. I mean... It'll be a revelation for Sydney golfers, won't it, Harley? You know, I grew up in Sydney, Sydney golf. Nothing like that existed. I remember talking to you about this. Went to the UK for the big golf trip, and it was just like a, an epiphany. It's like yeah. didn't know golf could be anything. There was never anything like that in Sydney. So you had an entire golf diaspora in Sydney that all they recognised was tree-lined golf. Yeah. Well, yeah. So this stuff is a revelation, and it's important, isn't it, more broadly? And yes, I use the word diaspora. We can it's talk about that with yeah. coherent and cohesive. <laughs> But that's important, isn't it, Harley? Yeah, well, for the education of golfers. Of yeah, I think, uh, and I think this is even in Melbourne Sandbelt. You know, back in the 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, the the way of improving the golf course landscape was to plant a tree. Mm. Uh, and unfortunately, a lot of golf clubs um, planted lots of trees. Um, Mike Clayton and I are involved a little bit at the moment with Yarra Yarra Golf Club, where it's fantastic. It's almost like a blank canvas through Renaissance golf's work. There, a lot of the junk. That was planted in the in the fifties and sixties, cedars and willows and poplars and things that don't belong, and you know, non-local native eucalypts and the classic one, the, the West Australian flowering gum. All this sort of stuff's been taken out, and there will be a conversion into again this this naturalised um, sort of heathland. You know, our, our sandbelt heath that belongs in Australia, which Royal Sydney once had this coastal heath and this eastern suburbs Banksia scrub, which is an endangered plant community, we're going to be putting those species back. And so we're not, we're not improving the golf course by, you know, getting out there and just the, the sort of noble act of, I say, of planting a tree. It's, it's planting all the little stuff and this great diversity. So, What's that little thing you've got out at Kalara, the mirulina, is it? The Mullenbergia, was it? Oh, With well, the purple, yeah, the purple flower? Yeah, yeah, it's your favourite. Yeah, yeah there's... Oh, it's my favourite, I can't yeah, remember that, the name yeah. of it. <laughs> 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 but well, that one comes up in Royal City naturally. You take the turf off. Yep. That's the other amazing thing about that place. There's been turf covering bits of ground there for 50, 60 years or more. You take the turf off and all of a sudden native stuff starts popping up. The seed's been latent in the ground for decades. It's just amazing. So, uh, yeah. And are there benefits beyond just golf for that, Harley? Because we talk a lot on here and we've talked with you about the pressures on public golf and land being used for things other than golf. Is there anything to be gained or learned from what's going to happen at Royal Sydney and what's happened at the Lakes and Bonnie Doon and some of these places beyond just golf? Can we show these – can we showcase these things as this is not just about golf and the playing of golf but golf as part of something bigger? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Well, I think there's a few things with you know the Royal Sydney example is you've got, you know, the classic one is the fauna. All of a sudden, if we can be supporting through having this great diversity of natural species back onto the side, restoring a semblance of pre-settlement type vegetation, we're going to be um, basically attracting and supporting a huge range of fauna species. I mean, there's there's birds that are moving up and down the coast all the time, you know, north to south, south to north, what have you, that will you know have their hopping dropping spot so they'll they'll be there'll be that sort of situation where you you know raw sitting becomes a legitimate part of a sort of wildlife corridor uh, supporting great diversity species there are micro bats on site and the gray-headed flying fox which are endangered species a lot of the ecology. Used to be wild deer roaming around there, didn't they? Like wild a, deer. Uh, what, native <laughs> wild deer are you suggesting <laughs> which here? Like? Which I'll just, <laughs> just spring up again. You'll rip back the turf deer yeah. pop out. Exactly. I'll <laughs> <It's> just <laughs> spring up again. You, you and it? Porter lives across the street. He'll be roaming it after three done. <laughs> <laughs> In the wild with his persimmons and blades. <laughs> yeah. be great. His hunting ground. It'll become his hunting ground. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I, a deer. I, I think one of the things you talked about with Sydney golf is having grown up playing golf here as well and playing a lot of golf here. People in my time never played much other Sydney golf except if you're a good player and you played pennants. And you didn't really care about the golf course. You were just trying to beat the other person, right? So you didn't really care to worry about improving your golf course because it was just the golf course you played every Wednesday or every Saturday. And as long as it was there every week and you worked out how to play it. And so many of those people would then go and play a place like the Lakes or the Australian, not so much for its architectural qualities, but for its difficulty and for its conditioning and struggle because they only had worked out the way to play the game at their tree-lined Kaikuyu golf course. And you go and get presented with these different things that require different golf. And they can appreciate that it's different, don't really understand why it's different, but know their game doesn't work there. But certainly don't want it at their course. No. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. The, the only, I think, the the box that they put themselves in, again, is just narrows down to that, like, well, what can we prove about our course? Faster greens and better sand in the bunkers. Yeah, that's that, right. That's, and that's, and how, that's it's how not you everyone, and it's it's certainly not everyone. It's certainly not every golf course, but it becomes that that's that that conditioning and that thing is what we want. And, oh, we've got a prime once a year and they, they never break par. One guy breaks par. So that's a great measure that we've got a hard golf course. And I think people like that can often then go to the sand belt, not understand why it's different and necessarily why it's better, but get that first exposure of, well, this is different and this is better for some reason. I don't understand why. Because it's not harder. No. Is the thing. Royal Melbourne's not a hard golf but, It's hard if you're a really good player and want to shoot a really high yeah, score. Yeah. But for everybody but, else. But then in it. Melbourne, for all the Melbourne golf, is you grow up with all those golf courses, fantastic golf courses in such a catchment, and you play more of the other golf courses. There's similarities, but there's differences. So you go across if you're a Kingston Heath member and you probably have a hit at Victoria every so often. You go and play rarely maybe, but Royal, and you might get a – so you get an understanding of the difference in the golf, which I don't think Sydney's had a culture of. No, I think you're And right. I think we're developing it since there's been – the lakes has been done, and people might not like it, but they see that it's different. Like Bonnie Doon is there. That yeah, that bloke Clayton just <laughs> Mark, destroying Mark Clayton. That's what he was calling it. <laughs> destroy, just destroying trees everywhere in his path. But there's you know Concord is uh, so much simple. better and yeah. and, and Kalara. People, yeah, Kalara. There, there <laughs> yeah. you go. Yes, yeah. I mean that, I, that's the thing about Sydney I grew golf. up around the corner from Kalara, and I knew what it was, and I knew it had a waiting list, and I went and played it, but it was. It was just a certain golf course, and the members loved it because they all played it there. And it's it's nothing like that now. And now it offers no, they different hate golf. It now. Yeah, they hate it now. <laughs> <laughs> that cruise or whatever it's it's been in, a voodoo doll of him out yeah. the back in the bag storage. But <laughs> but they've been ex- golf has been exposed to more Great. good golf and. Yep. And even on the fringes. But, you know, again, you might not love it. You might love it. You go just a little bit north and you go to Magenta Shores and you get something completely different than we ever had in Sydney. And you go, oh, hang on, that's different. I, I quite enjoyed that or I didn't enjoy that. So there, there's more of a thirst for variation in golf. And Royal Sydney is probably the prime example where, as a kid, you were told there was nothing wrong with Royal Sydney because it's Royal Sydney. Hmm. It couldn't the, be. The, strength, be. Yeah, the yeah. strength of yeah. golf in Sydney should be that variability. Like in Melbourne, you're a member at Vic – you go across and play Commonwealth, it's a subtle difference. Yes. There, there's, like, which you appreciate, There's, but it's variations on pretty much the same theme, which is a superb theme. But in Sydney, there's the opportunity for it to be perhaps the most diverse mm. uh, golf city in the world yep. when you go from the cliff tops of New South Wales, a little bit inland to the sand belt of Sydney with yep. Royal Sydney and the lakes. Australian and then And the Australian and Bonnie Doon. And then you go a little bit further inland to the – oh, and in fact, we've got a weird coastal sort of swampy beach course culture as well with 
Manly. Long Reef and Monavale and Manly. Yeah, Manly's a little bit like that. And you got the cliff, which is a unique sort of thing as well. And the, yeah, the yeah, escarpment and, type and of thing, and mix and yeah, all that cliff top yeah. golf, which should be best expressed as New South Wales. And then you've got the escarpment type of thing up at Eleanora, yep. and then Parkland golf, uh, yep. sort of in that that upper North Shore area, yep. which is unique again. And then you go up into the mountains, and you've got some you know cold season sort of golf, That's which right. should be sort of heathy and England sort of like. All within the space of two hours' drive from the coastline to the mountains. Uh, it should be the most diverse golf city in the world. And if we had world-class examples of each of those mm. types of golf course, what a destination Sydney would I think, be. I think George Thomas would come here to the North Shore. Yeah, he could have at least <laughs> done the North Shore bit. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Recreated the, I think there's Riviera and Bel-Air. The variation, the, the variation in golf in Sydney is more present in the public golf just by purely the land they've had. And you get that from you go and play the coast, and it's quite different to what Long Reef is, despite them both being, you know, sort of cliff top sort of mm. thing. Yeah. And then you go and play, you know, a Bondi that's completely different. Yeah. And you go and play those funny little places that we've been along the North Shore, like Castle Cove, that has its own identity because mm-hmm. of where it is. You play Castle Cove, exposed yeah. rocks yeah. and stuff. I've played everywhere. But the private golf, and not necessarily the top tier of private golf in Sydney, I think had less variation. That's where I noticed mm. it, that you would go and play and feel the same. It was nice and a nice club. So much so that a place on incredible piece of land like the lakes ended up feeling a little bit like the old Kalara. Correct. Like it was the same sort of shape of golf that was created everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And let's not forget more park and all this. More more park to be significant bit of golf in Sydney. And and probably I think they say it's the second busiest, you know, golf course in Australia after Wembley and Perth. And they're doing 90 to 100,000 rounds of golf. Which must make them two of the busiest golf courses in the world. In the world, absolutely. Well, Wembley with the mini golf and with the driving range must be one of the busiest golf facilities. Yeah. Which is amazing. For a city of two and a half million people, and yet yeah. it's the busiest golf facility in Australia. It's phenomenal, isn't it? I've just Second only behind Sydney Podcast Studios. <laughs> I've just noted the time, Harley. We better let you go. It's been great to have you. One thing I did yeah. want to mention in light of what you've just said, we got I got a direct message from one bearded golfer who uh, does a terrific golf co- a podcast of his own called Blind Shots. Will artificial intelligence and chat GPT draw golf course-shaped golf courses and dog-shaped dogs? I think that's one for you, Lowe. We'll have to have a whole episode <laughs> yeah. on that. I'm away that way. Over yeah, the top I was of just my head. So you'll be hosting Jimmy because I'm going to have that week. <laughs> what, what just, a, it, just a just a logue on his own. Just yeah, sitting here just a solo, talking uh, into the void. Wouldn't maybe that that's bring the, the fans back. Maybe that's the Patreon part. I think that's yeah. his Logue underlying desire wish. <laughs> actually, I think the underlying desire wish is that logue on his own, isn't it? <laughs> fabulous to have you, Harley. Good of you to come along. Glad you've thank been you. in the new studio. Let's not leave it so long until the next time. It's always fabulous when you come in. So thank you again, mate. Thank you, Rod. Jimmy, it's good, good to have you aboard, even though you were disagreeable at times. Well, I'm going to be more disagreeable based off the feedback. We need to l- agree less. We'll, we'll, we'll have some kind of an intervention. You can all get in here and, uh, and have that a go at me. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> Thank you. And Logue, good to have you aboard. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Pleased to be a part of this cohesive unit. <laughs> yeah. If not coherent. <laughs> well, here's one for you. Convenience stores. Should it be convenience or convenient? Because they're actually just convenient, aren't they? Whilst they are a convenience. Yeah, you can burrow your brow and think about that while we take out these. It's a stunned silence you're hearing now. It's still very early in the morning. (laughs) Episode 135 done. We'll be back with more Good Good next week.